Brothers and sisters, hear now the good news. We've been made children of God the Father who is in heaven. He shows compassion to his children, to those that fear him. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And so this is how we know that we have the love of the Father, that he sent his only begotten Son to be lifted up on the cross to take away the sins of God's children in whom you are. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in the 40th chapter of Exodus. Beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall place the ark of the testimony there, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. And you shall set the altar of burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and shall consecrate it and all of its furnishings and it shall be holy. And you shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and the altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him, that he may minister as a priest to me. And you shall bring him, bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father, that they may minister as priests to me. And their anointing shall qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did according to all that Yahweh had commanded him. So he did. Now it came about in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was erected. And Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Then he took the testimony and put it into the ark and attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Then he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the arrangement of bread and order on it before Yahweh, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Then he placed a lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lighted the lamps before Yahweh, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. 
Then he placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned fragrant incense on it, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Then he set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and meal offering, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And he placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing. And from it Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they entered the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel. We'll turn now to the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 3. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. If you would now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 1. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor stand in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again. 
see, your back stuck with me for a few weeks, and we are in the middle of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. I've been thinking this week about glory, and uh, came up as uh, my kids and I were, were going through the Gospel of John on a track through, through uh, a, a thread of the Bible. And we were reading John 17 where Jesus prays to the Father that his hour has come, it's time, please glorify me. And I made the comment to them that Jesus' prayer is one that is a model prayer for us as well. And so in some sense it is right to pray for glory. And this uh, shocked them a little bit. And that it, it doesn't seem right to pursue glory, at least in our, our kind of uh, faux humility. And yet God made us for, for this end, that we would be the glory of God. And if you continue uh, observing what Jesus prayed, he prayed, my hour has come, glorify me. And of course, he was talking about his death, so there is a means of glorification that we understand through the Gospels, we understand it through the epistles, what Paul writes to us in Philippians, that because he didn't consider uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped and emptied himself and took on the form of man, because he humbled himself, therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. But even in that, that prayer in John 17, as he's in the upper room, Jesus prays, glorify me, with a purpose so that I might glorify you. There is, from the very beginning, a way in which God made mankind, and he made him for this purpose, to both to, to, to be a part of it, that glory and then to turn the glory back unto the Father. And so you see all of this coming to fruition in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, where all things are subject to Christ, and then once all things are subject, including death, he then will subject all things to the Father. But my point in this is that God made us for glory, and there's a way in which we can think and we we shirk away from that, but we can't because we're made for it. God put eternity in our hearts. He made us as his children, and so we have a, a, a part of us. We're filled. Our very breath comes from the Spirit of God, and so we know, even the most hard and fast atheist knows that that God has placed that spirit in us for something more. If we don't grasp a hold of that, we won't be able to understand the mystery that Paul is telling us about in the epistle to the Colossians. God made us for this glory, and yet from the beginning, from the beginning mankind has pursued the glory in a way that it ultimately slips away from him. Paul promises a mystery, a mystery that we discussed. I'm guessing you won't remember what was said five weeks ago. I can barely remember what I said five weeks ago, let alone yesterday. But we discussed then this mystery. It's a mystery that God talks about throughout Scripture. It's not just in Paul's epistles. It's a mystery we find in Daniel chapter 2 and the the, the mystery of the vision. It's a mystery that we find in which there's a, a treasure hidden within God's house. Underneath the Ark of the Covenant, then he places three objects, the, the rod that budded, Aaron's rod that budded, the two tablets of the law, and, and then the manna, the, the bread. 
And Paul, in the book of Colossians, he declares to us that the mystery has been revealed. And he defines this mystery for us, but even, even before he defines the mystery in New Testament terms, we, we have an inkling of, of what's there. We have in, embedded in God's house, under his feet, in the box that no one can open up, that you, you can't go into other than the one man once a year, and, and that blinded. There's no light in there. You can't see what's hidden. But what's hidden then in that, in that ark, in a portable coffin, is hidden the symbols of authority, the vestiges of God's authority, the word that speaks the law that commands and judges, the, the rod that symbolizes the authority, the glory of mankind, and, and the very bread that God gives to feed him. And these gifts of God, they're are in a mystery form. We don't see the fullness of it yet. And there's a separation from, uh, there's separation after separation. God carves out this special place surrounded by people, people that still can't enter, and then surrounded by yet another people that can't even get as close. And so we have these layers of separation. But now that the new covenant come, now that Jesus has come and God glorified him, that treasure is opened up. And that's, that's at least in part what Paul is talking about. So I, I, wanna, I, I want to show you a little bit of that in the preamble to our, our verses for today. So we're going to start back in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. As Paul talks about his purpose, and that leads in then to this primary command that governs the rest of the body of the epistle. Colossians 1.24, Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this I was made a servant, according to the stewardship, the household stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might, fully, that I might fulfill the word of God. The mystery, which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. If you would pray with me, and then we'll look at these words again. Father, we come before you to ask yet again that you would speak the word that transforms to us, that you would govern and teach us through our King Jesus. Lord, you, uh, you're the one that has the two-edged sword with the power to divide joint and marrow. You divide our hearts and souls, and so we pray that you would do that in a way that strips away sin and brings us to the knowledge of our Savior, the revelation of this mystery, and knits us together again into true life and true knowledge, the image of the, the, the men and women that you made us to be. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. 
So notice again in verse 26 that what Paul is struggling for, what he's willing to give up his life for, is to fulfill the word of God, which is spoken in a mystery that right now, in a a very pregnant point in time, has been uncovered, and that mystery that's been hidden is now revealed. Remember from Proverbs 25, it's the glory of God to hide things. It's the glory of kings to search them out. Well, Jesus is the one who searches out as the king, the mystery of God that's been hidden. We'll, we'll talk about that in, in, again in just a second. But that mystery, that mystery is made, made visible in the Gentiles. So the, the bringing in of the Gentiles, who are at the farthest reaches excluded from this house, is the, 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 the visible form of the mystery revealed. Of course, the, the mystery has its work to do among the Jews, too. We've mentioned that through the book of Colossians. So it, it's not somehow separated like the mystery is just the Gentiles. The mystery is all of God's people brought in, and those treasures, the, the, the riches that we now know belong to Christ are unveiled and uncovered for us, so that in verse 27, he says that the riches of the, the, riches of the glories of this mystery are among the Gentiles, and this is, this is what he says it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the very thing which God made us for, the striving forward for this hope of glory, remember Psalm 8, what, what God made us to do. How, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that you consider him the son of man? What God has done is he's crowned him with glory and honor. We see that mystery brought forth in Jesus we see Jesus, and, and what's important here is that Jesus is both the anointed one and he's the Yahweh who promised, the God who promised. And he bears then this crown. He's crowned with glory and riches. And as the author of the Hebrews says, we don't see all things subjected to man yet, but we do see Jesus. Jesus has uncovered then this mystery of authority and glory where he bears the anointing of the priest, the king, the prophet. And he shows it forth to the world so that the division among men is done away with. So that we Gentiles, the Colossians, that that those Gentiles bear now, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of this very same thing that Christ now shows us. He wears the crown. He is what man is intended to be. And we share in a hope of being part of that same glory. More on that in just a minute. And so Paul struggles. He struggles then in proclamation of the word. We proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present him mature, complete. I don't know if I mentioned this, but it's, it's good to remember that what Paul is striving for is not looking backwards to a return of Eden, to a return of what God made Adam in the garden to be, but to full maturity. He's struggling both, both so that the salvation wrought through Christ in overcoming sin will be done, but also so that mankind under Christ will be made mature, filled with glory. And so he says in verse 29, For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So then he reiterates this in chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for, all, for those who are in Laodicea, for all those who have not personally seen my face. 
for this purpose, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love unto all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding Understanding what? The true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. So this is what Paul struggles for. On the basis of, now to the Colossians, that their hearts may be comforted, encouraged. He wants to come alongside them so that they're knit together in love, resulting in all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding God's mystery, the true knowledge of God's mystery. So again, we see here that what Paul is looking for, particularly in this church uh, at, at Colossae, is he sees their understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery inextractably knit to how they love one another. Remember, their love for one another is, is, is uh particularly here the love of the Jew and the Gentile. They're knit together, and so in the revelation of the Jew and the Gentile coming together, entering into God's house, they understand and they will see the true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. So Christ is revealed in that one new man, the church, his body, Jew and Gentile, without division, without separation from him. In Christ, then, in verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a verse that we would do well to meditate on. It's fundamental to the protection that Paul is calling this church to. There is a word, a deluding word, in verse 4. No different from the word of the serpent in the past that suggests that there is a wisdom, a treasure, that's hidden outside of Christ. And we ought to think then back to the garden in the first way that Satan attempted to deceive mankind and to steal the very treasure that God had laid up for him. He deluded him with empty words into pursuing, pursuing the treasure apart from God himself. So he says, I say this, I want you to know all of this because, because there are persons, children of the devil, who are attempting to delude you with persuasive words. So be filled with the word of God fulfilled, back from verse 25, so that you're not deluded. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So this is where we stopped. I didn't quite get to describe the, the, that last verse. We were clipping along a little rapidly last time. Paul, he ends his purpose there with joy. And you'll see that this, this matches everything else he does in the book. Even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit. There's a unity there now that transcends the body of flesh. I'm with you, having been knit with you through the Spirit of God, and I rejoice because I see your good discipline. That word good discipline is the word toxis. It, it can have a military overtone in which you are in order. You're arrayed in a certain order, and it's the same root from which later on he's going to draw out relationships for us. So it's the, the, the same root from which we get the, the word to subject 
So how we order ourselves within the house of God. And he says, I rejoice to see that you have a good order. And this word is important because he's going to play against another, another Greek word for order and arrangement later in the book. So he's, he's, he's not concerned about them yet. They're ordered correctly, and that order then is found in Christ. And then secondly, he rejoices to see the stability, the firmness, another, another military word, so you can get the, the idea of the, the Colossians are in array, they're dressed appropriately, and they're established, they're strong in their faith in Christ. And yet he wants them to become even more ordered and to become even stronger because... Because there is a deceptive influence which is, is attacking the church, not just in Colossae, but in the entire New Testament church. You read Paul's letters, he writes to seven churches, just like John does, not the same seven churches. And in each of those letters, he's dealing with this same problem, this same attack by Satan, and, and, and Satan takes different deceptive roots but it's the same fundamental problem in which he's attacking the revelation of the mystery of the gospel in Christ made known through the one new man, Jew and Gentile, together. And so all of this brings us to verse 6, which is his primary command in the epistle. I'm going to read now verses 6 through 23, and we'll, we'll come back and look specifically at those, those two or three verses. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in body, and in him you have been made full. And he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your f flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a shadow of what is to come, but the body is Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on what he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using, in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men? These are matters which, to be sure, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against the filling of the flesh. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I'm not going to give you the full outline for this portion of the text yet. We'll, we'll come to that in the next couple of weeks. But I do want you to notice how all of, all of Paul's warnings, they flow out of this singular command. As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. And what you'll notice is that there's this little miniature organization that follows with the prepositional phrases that he chooses, kind of like his hymn in the last chapter. So in verse 8, you walk not according to the tradition of men, not according to the elementary principles, but according to Christ. In verse 9, 10, and 11, in him the fullness dwells, and in him you have been made full, and in him you were circumcised. Verse 12, 13, 14, 15, you have been buried with him, you have been raised with him, and you have been made alive with him. And so these then speak to what that walk looks like. How do we walk in Christ? So verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now why, why does he tell us this? He's already told them, he's rejoicing that they're in good order, that they're, they're firm. Now he's telling them walk. And this, this idea of walking, Paul uses it quite a bit, but it's not just a Pauline idea. Instead, the, the kind of big epic metaphor of walking runs throughout the whole Bible. You walk with walk with God in the cool of the day all the way back in Genesis and repeated throughout the Old Testament, you have then this command, walk in the law, walk in my way, walk with me, walk behind me. But all through life you have then this progressive command to walk. And one of the things you can notice about that is uh, you're moving forward. So the, the command is not just be firm, not just be strong, but to move God made us to move forward, and we'll see that even in verse 7 in the progression of participial phrases that he uses to describe this walk. But he gives us then this command, and it rides on verse 8, we walk in the Lord Jesus Christ as we've received him, and that walk, when we obey it, it protects us from being taken captive, from being plundered by opposing philosophies, by opposing traditions of men and empty deception. So what, what does it mean then to walk? We're going to look at then at, at each of the, the parts of this, this uh, command to walk, the, the basis of it, and, and then the phrases that he uses afterwards to describe the walk. I've been trying to walk more, and uh, well, one of the things I do, I, I know whenever I have a meeting that I don't have to be at my computer. I just I walk the neighborhood, so I walk the neighborhood a lot now, and it's quite hot. I made the poor decision. Well, maybe not not going forward, but it has been. I made the poor decision uh, to buy some off-brand shoes. I thought it'd be cheap, so I, I got some really cheap ones off Amazon, and it turns out that walking can be quite miserable if you don't have good footwear. And I was thinking as I'm walking, all right, how do, how do you understand this command, walk in him? It's a very simple command, walk in him. But it's something that doesn't quite make sense to us. We know how to walk in a place, in a time, but we don't know how to walk in a person. Walk in, in him, that prepositional phrase in, 
Even in the English translation, it has a broad sense of meaning. It depends on the object. So when I walk, I walk in my neighborhood. That's the, the, the locale in which I walk. But I also walk in my shoes. That's the footwear. And I walk in a time, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the afternoon, which is not as fun. And, and, and I can also walk into a place. It's not really a different word. Well, the, the Greek in, Paul has already demonstrated for us how he uses prepositional phrases back in chapter 1, and considering the Hebrew prepositional phrase be, he, he translated then in, through, and to. He took a much broader view of what that prepositional phrase means. And so we're invited to do the same with Paul's words. He gives us a breadth of meaning of what it means to walk in, but then we have to decide who, who the him is, what, what does it mean, what meaning is he drawing out of walk in him. So we'll start then with the first phrase, how do we do it? As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Uh, again, here there's different ways to take even a simple phrase like that. You can put the accent on the you, the accent on the received, or the accent on the Christ Jesus the Lord. And we need to do a bit of all of the above, but there is, uh, I guess, a, a slight warning in that we can have a tendency to read this verse with the you being singular, no longer directed at the Colossian church, but directed at me, me in the modern day, so Caleb, as I receive the Lord, and then I have this uh, kind of walk down memory lane to say, all right, how did I receive the Lord, and now I'm going to walk in Him. And, of course, each of us has a different story about how we receive the Lord. And it, coming from different backgrounds, the, the assonance in those stories changes. I don't think that's what Paul wants us to think of here. He's writing to a church in Colossae, and he's writing to a church where he... He knows how they received the Lord. He says it. You received it from Epaphras. You learned it from Epaphras, our beloved brother. And this word receive even is used throughout the New Testament. Almost every time you look it up, you'll find that it's, it's used to talk about what's handed down from God to man. So you re, as I received from God, 1 Corinthians 11, I, I handed it down to you and you received it from, from me. And so directly opposed to the words of men or the traditions of men, what is received is received from God himself. So then what does it mean? How does it, how does it mean how do we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? And I think embedded in, in, in this statement, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, is the confession that we see throughout the New Testament, the confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate, the confession that's in Romans 10 and 1 Corinthians 12, that Jesus is Lord. But specifically here, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you, if you break that down, Jesus, the word Yeshua in Hebrew means Yah saves. So God saves is the name of, of the one he sent. And then we have two two. I hesitate to use the word descriptions, but Jesus Christ, which means the anointed one. So this is then the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, the anointed one. So Jesus is the Christ, the promised anointed one. And remember in 
in the Old Testament, the anointing was given first to the priest and then to the king and then to the prophet and, uh, as you move through epochs of Israel's history. Jesus, the one whose name is God saves, is the anointed one, the promised one of Isaiah 61, the anointed one who proclaims liberty to captives. Jesus is that anointed one, and that, that anointed Messiah then is both the rescuer, the deliverer, but he's also a picture of the fulfilled, mature man that God promises in Psalm 8, all the way from Genesis 1. So Jesus is the Christ, but then combined with that in this confession is that Jesus, the Christ, is Lord. Now, the Lord, kurios, just means master, but in the, in the New Testament, uh, as, it, as you quote the Old Testament and quote the Septuagint, the Lord is, is what's used in place of the name Yahweh. So you could translate this, this Jesus, whose name means God, God saves, is the anointed one, and he himself is Yahweh, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Yahweh that rescued Israel out of Egypt that redeemed his people from Pharaoh. He is God. And this is, this is what's critical to the confession. You, if you start to think about that simple statement, that Jesus, the anointed one, is Yahweh, and expand out what that implies, everything that that means, it, it will fill up the Bible. Jesus, the anointed one, is Yahweh. This is the confession of the New Testament church, and this is how we receive Jesus. Not, not as a man, but as the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, but also, and equally importantly, as Yahweh. So the mystery revealed is, is part and parcel with this. We see God's authority being given to man, but we see how God does it in that man and God are, are dwelling together. And he's going to say it that way in just, just a minute, for in him all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And so when we come then to this passage and he tells us, walk in this truth, that Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the promised one, and Yahweh himself, now we have a better picture of the hope of glory, God and man together. God has sent the deliverer, he sent the mature man, and we can both we can both come to him for salvation and deliverance, and we can look at him as the mature man that God is making us to be. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom begins there. If we want to, to uh, pursue God's intent for us, we look to Jesus so as you read the Gospels, we're on a track to read them four times this year. You read, you read Jesus' way, his life, and it is a, it, it's a worked-out picture of what it means for a man to be a man. It's, it's a living picture of, God, of a body of flesh being filled with the Spirit and living. And so as you have received Jesus, the anointed one, as Yahweh, the Lord, walk in him. 
Well, of course, this has all kinds of implications for our life. You can read in 1 John that, that uh, no, one, no one but with the Spirit can say these things, that, that Jesus came in the flesh, or from 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 12, that, that Jesus is Lord. Only, only by the Spirit can we confess, even this, this confession, that, that Jesus is the Anointed One and Yahweh. And so we walk in that truth, but there's, there's a bit more to it. And so I want to look then at verse 7. He gives us four participial phrases to describe that walk. And there's a progression in those phrases. So verse 7, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. There's a progression in, uh, in the verb tenses. So the first verb tense is a, uh, a perfect passive participial tense in which you have and are being. So there's a, a progressive component to it in which you look to the past, you were rooted firmly, and remember he's talking to the church at Colossae, and then as we move forward, they're in the present. So you are being built up. All of these things continue. You have been and are being, remain firmly rooted in Him. You are being and continue to, will continue to be being built up in Him. And you are being established in your faith and you should be overflowing with gratitude. Now each of these verses is in the, the passive form, meaning that here in verse 7, it's something that God is doing to us. We can walk in Christ because God is doing these things to us. He has rooted us. He is rooting us. He is building us. He is establishing us. And he's filling us to overflowing so that we're overflowing with gratitude. Now, it's the same things, by the way, that Paul already thanked God for and prayed God for. Prayed, prayed. That sentence doesn't make sense. Prayed for God for. You shouldn't end sentences with uh, participles, apparently. So if you look back to verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter 1, we see a very similar, uh, similar prayer. This time he's praying that God would do it. He prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord for this purpose, to please him in all respects. And then we have... Again, four participial phrases. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, and giving thanks. You don't see it quite as easily in the English, but it's those four phrases. And if you start to match them up, you'll find that in imagery, they match together. The first one, you have been rooted, you are being rooted, is the picture of a tree. And the first participial phrase in verse 10, then, is you... He's praying for the bearing of fruit. So the tree grows up and produces fruit, and then he prays for an increase, an expansion in the knowledge of God. You are being built up. It's an expansion. Then verse 11, he prays for the strengthening with all power. You're being established. We'll talk about that word a bit more. And he prays in verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness and patience. And then finally, giving, rising forth to joy and giving thanks. And that one doesn't need any explanation for why, why they're parallel. And so first he prays for their walk, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he commands them, walk, 
Walk in him. As you receive Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one as Yahweh, so walk in him and walk this way, having been rooted, being built up, being established, and, and in the state of being filled to overflowing. And there's a, another, I guess a second aspect that I'd like to notice about these words. They're a collage of, of metaphors or images and Paul's known for this. He likes to mix his metaphors. But each of these words, I think, is chosen on purpose. So you move from rooted to building to establishing or confirming to overflowing. And if you think, think through, then, what God has done, each of those words is attached to an epic in history, to, to a covenant, and to a house. So let me draw that out for you. If we go back in time to Abraham, God has God cut off the world in Noah. He started over with a new Adam in Noah, and he covenanted with him because sin grew first in Cain, and then it grew through Lamech. It progressed, and there was an intermixing of the sons of God and the daughters of men so that there were no more children being raised in the knowledge of God. And so God cut the world off. A world made out of waters was ended by water. And he brought forth then his new Adam in the person of Noah. But sin again sprang forth. He gave a covenant with more glory and more authority with the, the, the sword given into the hand of Noah to cut off sin in its infancy. But still, sin grew. And sin grew to the point where, once again, the sons of God and the daughters of men were intermixed so if you read carefully, we, we studied with the young adults in, in Genesis 10 that it would be the uh, Nimrod meeting with the sons of Shem on the plain of Shinar. So God's sons named in Shem and the wicked found in Nimrod and there together they built the Tower of Babel. And so once again, we have this mixing of the sons of God and the daughters of men. There's a pollution of God's people and, and God, he's promised I will not destroy mankind again this way. And so instead, he selects out Abram. And he calls Abram into a land. He says, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. I'm going to make you into a nation. And I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And I'm going to make you into a blessing for all of the nations. And he, he brings him forward into this land of promise. And as he walks through the land, if you remember from Genesis 12, and 13, he walks from site to site so that in Genesis 12, he first stops He first stops in Shechem, and there is the Oak of Morah, and he builds an altar and he worships God. And he, he's, he, he worships there by the Oak. And we don't always pick that out as important, but it, it's this picture of God's house being built in Abram. And it's being built through the land with trees popping up left and right, uh, and more on that in just a second. And uh, just consider, Abram is forced out of the land by famine. He goes down to Egypt, and there Pharaoh attacks his wife. You can about argue about whose fault it is, but Pharaoh attacks the bride. And God intervenes, he delivers, and Abram returns. He returns with the wealth, the treasure of Egypt, and he worships God, this time in Hebron, by the oaks of Mamre. He makes an altar. 
and there he is rooted in the land. To the extent that what you find drawn out from, from this uh, part of Israel's history is that each of the patriarchs goes back and is buried there in Hebron. They're rooted, literally, planted in the ground by the tree uh, of the oaks of Mamre in Hebron. Paul, Paul uses this image to talk about the Abrahamic covenant in Romans 11. He says that you, they've been cut out of the rich root of the olive tree. So it's, it's a, a rooting of a tree. God's rooted Abram in the land of promise. And, and he says, all right, you think about that. God has rooted you, you church in Colossae. You have been rooted, remain rooted. You move through history to the next word, and Abram's sons flee to Egypt during a famine, and they, they again take up the idols in Egypt. But as they call out to God, God gives a deliverer, another anointed one, a Messiah, in the person of Moses. And Moses delivers, and once again the story proceeds. They plunder. They take the, the gold from the land of Egypt. God rescues them and brings them to Mount Sinai where he makes another covenant. And in that covenant, he, he expands the house. And he gives them the blueprint to build up the house of God as a mobile tent where God dwells in their midst. And so they build that tent, and that's the passage we read on, in Exodus 40 where God comes and fills the tent that they build. They, they built according to his blueprints. But simultaneously, it's not just God's house in, uh, in the mobile tent form that's built up, but God's people are built up. Remember that Abraham, Abraham came and 70 men, or 70 persons, went down to Egypt, and they, come out, they came out millions. God built up his people so that they were a nation, bonded to him at Mount Sinai, he, he built them into something bigger, and then he built his house in their midst. And as you move forward again, fast forward another 500 years, and you see the story of David. Again, Israel is under attack, this time by Philistia. So they're, they're uh, the cousins, nephews of the Egyptians, so there's a relationship there. And there's a, a danger and God again sends an anointed one, a Messiah, to rescue in the person of David. And, and, and so God rescues them, and, and again he gives a covenant. And this time he says, he says in his covenant with David that I am going to establish you. Your sons will be kings, and you're going to be established before me. And you look at these transition of words. We walk in Christ Jesus the Lord, the anointed one, the Yahweh, having been rooted, being built up, being established. And there's a, a growth then. You can even think about it dimensionally where you, you're, you're first founded, rooted in the ground, and then you're built up. So there, there's a, a kind of two dimensions built up for you. And then there's an establishment with the Davidic covenant, a, a permanency that's given. And you see that in God's house with a thickening of the walls. So it's not just that he makes makes uh, David's sons his king forever to sit on the throne, thereby promising the anointed Christ. But also, he builds then a more permanent residence in the temple. So he gives the plans, and the people are established in the land. And then, of course, finally, you move forward another 500 years, and you see another similar transition. The people again sin. They're again in, in, in danger, this time from the north, 
um, from the people of, of Babel, from Nebuchadnezzar, but, but in a twist, God uses then those emperors as his own anointed ones to bring them out and to rescue his people. And he rescues them then into the land of Babylon and preserves them there. But specifically, if you go look then at what God promises, he gives another covenant, another promise, and another house. And that house is characterized as bigger. It moves beyond, beyond the size of the tabernacle or the temple. We have this augmentation in which it flows over into the boundaries where it looks more like a city than a house. And it fills the city of Jerusalem. But then specifically, you think even further about what God does and everything. Everything gets bigger so that it's no longer contained within the walls of a temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Instead, even the, the picture of the water that normally sat in front of God's house and the, the first, the small bath, and then the much bigger 12,000 baths in front, of the, in front of the temple is now spilt out, and there's a river that runs out of the house of God, and it flows over its banks, and it gets larger and larger and larger. And you all know these things, right? But each one of these words then walks us through the picture of what God is doing. So the confession that Jesus is the anointed one, Yahweh, it's also a confession that says that everything God has been doing in history, He's been bringing to this point, to this fulfillment, the uncovering of the mystery where, where God's house grows and grows and grows and it takes over the world. As you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, being built up in Him, established in your faith as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So for the Colossians, specifically, this is going to say something to them about how they relate to one another as Jew and Gentile. There is a specific command embedded in this walk. You have been knit together in love. The temple has been opened up and God has brought in Jew and Gentile together and we see that in the person of Jesus now brought forth into a new order. We no longer work, and we'll, we'll talk about this next week, according to the old order where there's a separation, a boundary layer. Instead, the house of God has overflowed those boundary layers. What does that mean for us He says in verse 8, see to it that no one plunders you. That's the, that's the word. And this is related then to that walk. See to it that no one plunders you. Now remember, in each one of those houses, God took the people out. He rescued them and they plundered those who were the enemy. And they took that plunder and they built up the house of God. That's how it was built. It was made out of enemy gold each time. He says, walk as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so that, see to it that, no one plunders you. And the plundering takes place by, by falling prey to a philosophy, to an empty deception. The word philosophy just means the love of wisdom. What's, what's interesting about Colossians is he's been telling us to love wisdom this whole time. We ought to be lovers of wisdom. And yet there is a form of wisdom that's drawn out in Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth. The Greeks love wisdom. They love philosophy. There's a form of wisdom which has nothing to do with Christ. It's not, it's not shown forth through him. 
And that form of wisdom is nothing but an empty lie. There's a way to pursue glory, as Adam and Eve did in the, go- in the garden, by the philosophy and the empty deception of the, ser- the serpent that ends up in self-destruction. So see to it that that doesn't happen to you. So hold fast to the confession that Jesus, the anointed one, is Yahweh. Walk in him. And remember I said that there's an expansion on that preposition. How do we walk in Jesus as both the anointed one and as Yahweh, God himself, the God who keeps his promises? Well, we walk now in a new age. And we'll have more to say about this. But there's a temporal component to this which Paul wants us to see. This new age has a new order, and it's an order that's defined by Jesus because he's been crowned with glory and, be, glory and honor and because the veil of the temple was ripped and Jew and Gentile come in. There is a new arrangement, a new order. And if we, if we try to go backwards, even that going backwards to, to what was is now nothing but philosophy and empty deception. We cling to Christ. And so if you bring dividing walls between God's people, as we've been hearing in the book of Galatians, that is anathema. It's a denial of the very thing that Christ has, has done on the cross and is showing us forth in his person. We'll spend a little more time on, on verse 8 next week, but I, I want us to think then it's, it's both temporal, there's an age in which there's Christ, there's a sphere. Remember that Jesus is man and God. He's anointed and Yahweh. And it goes back then to Colossians chapter 1. The creator is the redeemer. The redeemer is the creator. All things, all things through him, to him, for him have been made. All things through him, to him, for him are being reconciled. And so everything that we do now is founded locationally in Christ. We can't see it, but the heavens and the earth are made new around us. That which defined them before no longer defines them. So how do we walk? We grasp a hold of the mystery that God has uncovered, the hope of glory. Our problem is not that we don't have a hope for glory. Everybody has one. You may give up on it at some point in time, but you can see it, especially in young people. That they want to be something. They want glory, so they're going to work, they're going to work hard at something. God made us for that hope of glory, but it's seen. The glory that we should pursue is seen in Christ, and it's uncovered and given by Christ. And when we pursue it outside of him, that, that hope of glory will make us be plundered. That means we'll lose the very thing we're after. We're after, we're after glory. We're after the, the picture of Jesus as the true man who dwells with God, is indwelt by God. He has the fullness of deity, dwells in Him, and God promises that to us too, even now. In Him you have been made full. Each of those pictures we saw is a picture of God's house being built. It's rooted, it expands, until it's overflowing with the fullness of God. And God says, that belongs to us. So part of this walk is seeing what God has done wanting the glory that he is offering and then pursuing it in Christ. There's a means to pursue it. And the means to pursue it, in chapter 1, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. We pursue it after the same means that Christ pursued it. 
by living in a body of flesh but filled with the Spirit of God so that we no longer walk according to the desires of the flesh, according to the fears of the flesh, the fear of death. Instead, we walk by the Spirit, trusting that God is bringing all of these promises forward to fulfillment. Now, we live 2,000 years after the church of Colossae. He uses the past tense, you've been rooted. But if you think about the church, the church has not just been rooted, the church has been built up. The church has been established. Now, it's continuing to be built. It's continuing to be established. But we ought to look at that as we read in the Psalm 48 this morning. Walk about her ramparts. Consider her towers. Look at Mount Zion that God is building. This is the city of God. Take heart. Be encouraged. Be knit together in love because therein we see and understand the full assurance of the true knowledge of the mystery, Christ in us. So we walk in him, and he, as we'll see in, in John 15, he abides in us. So we'll finish this thought next week. We're, we're out of time. But consider then, consider as, as we conduct ourselves, as we live, do we, do we do it with the hope of the glory of God in our midst? That should define the way we walk, but it's not just a moral definition of how we walk. It's where our eyes are fixed. What do you hope for? you would, please stand and let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the promises that we see brought to fruition in Jesus. We thank you that we live now in fulfillment where we can look to Jesus. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man, crowned with glory and honor. Unto Him all creation gives obedience. You've raised Him up above angels through suffering and death, and you've set Him there for us to look at. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so, Lord, we pray that, uh, pray that you would help us to walk in Him in this new age which no longer seems very new, but to see beyond the trappings of the world around us to the city that you're building out of people whose walls are getting thicker and, and in ways that we don't understand is being filled up with your very presence. And so, Lord, we pray, pray that you would help us to heed this command and to be full to overflowing with thanksgiving because you have rooted us, because we're, we don't just look backwards or forwards, we do both. You've rooted us, you're building us up, you're establishing us, and you're filling us, and so we give you thanks. We give thanks to our Savior and the one who's gone on ahead of us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen.